Welcome to Critical Thinking Required, hosted by LBW. Our goal is simple. We want to challenge you to think differently about finance and business. Join us and start the journey today. Welcome to Critical Thinking Required. You're with your hosts, myself, Tim Bickmore, and my two colleagues, Dan Weiss and Nathaniel Leach. And today we are going to take top five current events that we've seen in 2020 and do a little round robin. Dan's going to be our captain today, and he's going to take us through our list, and we're going to hit on some topics, and uh, hopefully we're going to continue to do this in the future, um, where we just take some some fun, interesting facts that have happened in, in uh, the recent time and, and discuss them. So, Dan, let's get us started off. Great. Thanks, Tim. So, today we've picked five, which originally was like 15, so this was not easy to do, um, financial mind benders of 2020 just to quickly hit on. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to jump in here and give uh, and give the first person up to three minutes to talk about their thoughts on this piece. And uh, if they have time left over, great. Uh, and then we'll give a, an extra minute here if anybody else here on the team wants to put their thoughts or, or provide a, a rebuttal or anything like that. So uh, let's start with Tim and the mind bender, Tim, to, for you to discuss today is the Fed's cutting their interest rate back in uh, March. Ready, Tim? Begin. So the Federal, uh, the Federal Reserve of the United States uh, back in March, the beginning of March, uh, had an, a meeting that was in between their regular scheduled meetings to actually have an emergency rate cut. Um, and they brought the federal funds rate down from 0%, between 0% and 0.25%. Uh, this was a really big deal. It was actually the first unscheduled meeting between meetings since the financial crisis. So you can kind of see and get it related to how um, aggressive that is for the Fed to come in and do that so quickly. Uh, the reason why the federal fund rate was decreased was to help lower short-term interest rates. So to help people out when it came to loans that they were borrowing or trying to borrow, which then will help spur investment is always the goal and help kind of continue to fuel the market with cash. So that is definitely what they were trying to attempt to do, which has been, you know, we'll see what happens later down the road in the next five, 10, 15 years to see what all of this monetary policy really comes to, to fruition. Um, but overall, it was, it was a really kind of important factor when it came to COVID and the pandemic that we're currently experiencing. Great. Thanks, Tim. Um, I, I, the only thing I'll add to it is, of course, this, this stirred up a ginormous refinance boom um, in, in the country that we're still seeing today. Okay, let's move on to the next one then. Nathaniel, this is going to be you. You've, you have been our point person as it has come to the PPP or the, well, and the EDML programs. Uh, could you perhaps talk about why those were so relevant in the headlines? Ready? Begin. Sure. So uh, the PPP loan, Triple uh, P as I like to call it, was the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, and then there was also the EID loan, uh, as, and that was called the Economic Injury Disaster Loan. So the point of those you know, programs was multifold, depending on, on how you want to use them. So the Triple P loan was great because it's, it's, a, it's a forgivable loan. So for any any business owner who, and this is business owners, I should say, any business owners who want to have the 
one and get rid of it, it's great. Uh, the EID one could be used in tandem to a triple E one, but there were some interesting things along with that that you had to be careful of. The general idea was to keep people employed such that the unemployment arms of the state governments were not overloaded. I would argue that that was not the case. Tim, I bet you've got something to add to that. Yeah, the, the PPP loan um, and that program that was put together by uh, the federal government was quite interesting. And what was even more fascinating was the decentralization of it and how the federal government really pushed that down to the bank level and really had them kind of interpret the law. And we actually saw during that time frame when some of our clients and other uh, people that we had spoken to were getting different information from different bankers and their the different interpretation, which... Honestly, I don't necessarily fault the banks because they were we were literally getting updated information on the law like day by day, week by week. So this whole program was quite intensive and it spanned a lot of money to get to a lot of small businesses. But the process to get there um, is still it's still evolving. And it was it's been really interesting to watch the execution of the program. Uh, all right, moving on, Tim. Bank and student loan deferments. We didn't see it in 2008. We definitely saw it and are continuing to see it now. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think this one is, I don't want to speak too fast. Come Sometimes when I get excited, I speak too fast. But the bank, def- the, the really specifically, you know, liability deferment or forbearance and then the student loan deferment and forbearance was quite fascinating. And I'm just going to say one thing quickly about it is I, I think that because this was a pandemic, which was like really um, a world emergency, and it wasn't necessarily anyone's fault, that it really gave Congress the ability to be a little bit more expansive with their packages um, compared to 2008, where 2008, there was some moves that were made by certain institutions that may have, you know, kind of helped with the process of the the collapse. Um, And part of this So with that being said, I think they allowed them to kind of go in and really help people out where it really needed most, which was mortgages, right, which is a really large part of people's expenses and and student loans. So the deferment programs on both of those have been quite fascinating to watch. For student loans, uh, it was deferred all the way up to September 30th of 2020, and it was no accrued interest. I believe that Trump had signed an executive order this weekend to actually extend that program. Now, I don't know that it's gone officially through yet. I checked the federal uh, student loan website and they said that they're still monitoring it with the federal government to provide guidance. But it looks like they're going to actually extend that, pro- extend that program to January 1st, 2021, where you can continue to defer your payments and not accrue any interest. Now, the one positive also for people who can continue to afford their payments is that you can actually pay them down quicker because you're not paying any interest. It's going to go to all principal when you actually make those payments. Um, And I'm speaking specifically on federal loans, not private loans. Then in addition, you have the mortgages that also, um, if it's a federal loan that you have, you, there is a deferment policy for for people affected by COVID. And it's, that's also been really interesting because we've seen banks that have some on the private side with both private liabilities, like car loans, even some of their credit cards, where they also have put together their own deferment packages on some of those liabilities. But what I would just highly suggest is if you're looking to defer any payments, please be sure to contact the institution. Please make sure you understand all the details. But overall, the, the way that the, you know, the United States government and other banks have really gone to help the consumer, I think has been quite astonishing to be 
very honest. The only, the only other thing I, I will add to is that it has, we've seen even more than bank and student loan deferments locally here, UW credit union, for example, was deferring car payments and we've seen insurance companies give back premium um, because people weren't driving their vehicles as much, just things we did not expect to see. But I, I think Tim drives home a good point at the end there, which is, make sure you check with your institution as these different terms are, are different per institution. We have some, for example, on the mortgage side, institutions saying they're just tacking on those payments towards the end of the loan, even if that is 30 years from now. And some are saying that, hey, we're deferring for six months, but in month seven, you gotta come clean with all of those. I just wanna add too, what's been interesting with the mortgages as well is that banks are really struggling with how to restructure those loans from like um, how they technically are structured from like, I think a legal perspective. So I think that's also why you see some of these deferments where they can't really necessarily go in and actually change the structure of the loan. I've heard some bankers say like the federal government quite didn't understand how that was going to necessarily work or how they were going to make that function on a logistics perspective. So yeah, that, that, that's been a interesting run. Nathaniel, it looks like you got something to say. You got about eight seconds, Nathaniel. Seven. Do your own homework. Well, you did it. Nailed it. You got it in seven seconds. <laughs> okay. Uh, so that is going to then bring us to the next question, which I'll start this one off. And, and the question has been a really fun one that we have seen coming from people on a very fascinating topic. And that topic is, why is it that the quote-unquote market is not representing the economy at this time? So I'll kick that off. Ready myself? Begin. So usually, I guess let's start with talking about what the market is. Typically speaking, most people are referring to the market as the S&P 500 index or another index, but that's the common one that people uh, seem to associate. So they, they, it makes actually total sense as to why, quote unquote, that market is not matching the economy. They are not the same. And I think often be the case, people think that they are. So let's just talk a little bit as to why that is the case. When we talk about the S&P 500 from a construction standpoint, you have to understand that what we're looking at is 500 of the largest entities in the United States. Well, 99%, according to the SBA, of businesses in the U.S. are considered small business, and 95% of those businesses actually employ 10 or fewer people. So when we talk about the comparison of just size of business, the S&P does not represent most of those entities. Not to mention that we're talking a, a, a domestic entity, even though a lot of those revenues and so on are collected from all across the globe, the reality is that they are still domestically held. This is very much a global economy. I don't think anyone can argue that these days. Well, again, then we're looking at 500 um, holdings, 500 companies, even though there are over 600,000 publicly traded entities on different exchanges across the world. The other issue that we see is that if you would have asked me about the S&P 500 10 years ago, I would have said that that entity is over-diversified. Today, that is not the case. So we're really talking about six entities, primarily in one sector, that are really driving that home. So when people say, oh, well, the market has come back, and we've talked a little bit about this in other podcasts, not, not really, actually. The market has actually uh, uh, not been the component of that. It's really five or six entities, you could probably guess who those are primarily in that tech sector that have driven those gains and have really driven those gains since 2014. And I won't quote the stat because I'm going to give one of these guys the ability to quote a stat that we read today, actually, um, which was an updated stat that we've seen before that is really interesting 
But uh, in all reality, that's what you're looking at. You're looking at, if you take the top five of those entities, five companies, so 1% of the S&P 500, equating for 21% of the overall allocation inside the S&P. Any thoughts, gentlemen? Well, um, if you would like me to give that stat, I can right now. Uh, just bear with me because I, you know, reading numbers to the audience is always a fun thing. So what Dan is talking about when he's, when he's speaking of the top um, six holdings, that's what is referred to as Fan M. So Facebook, Amazon, Alphabet, Apple, Netflix, and Microsoft. So year to date, I'll just do year to date numbers, which that equates from 1231 of 2019 to 630, 2020. Those six stocks have returned 23.77%. If you remove those six stocks and see what the rest of the S&P has done over that time frame, they have returned to negative 9.16%. And that really includes all these, and you're going to find that in NASDAQ, right? There's duplication of those entities inside of an index like that too. So it's funny when everyone says, oh, I don't want all my eggs in one basket. Well... Yeah. And the, the only other thing I'd add to that too, and we ha- we did speak about um, this in our podcast, as Dan mentioned, but overall, when you're looking at the market, you have to remember it's a secondary market, right? You have people trading back and forth and trying to understand the price of that underlying security. So it doesn't always necessarily mean that, as Nathaniel would say, price equals value. And that that is definitely an important distinction, which means that this that the economy is typically more of a leading indicator is what is typically coined as. The market is a leading indicator indicator of the economy. Uh, all right, so that's gonna bring us to uh, our last tidbit to hit on today, which is uh, the following, and I'll start there too, and I'm sure, that, I'm sure that Nathaniel will have some comments on here and Tim might as well too. So here, here is the question, um, and we've been hearing a lot of people asking, speaking of those entities we just referenced, about antitrust violations and what the repercussions of that could be. So uh, as it relates to possible antitrust issues, uh, what does that look like in today's uh, marketplace? I'm gonna begin that. And so I'm gonna begin that actually by reading an email that that question was asked by a client seven days ago and popped out a response from an email version. I'm gonna read that email to kind of get us a base on that. And we've heard it a couple times since then. So um, I'm gonna begin here in one second and ready and If monopoly means extremely high market share with short-term market power, the answer is yes. If it means that we had an unchallengeable position where new and better technology didn't have a chance to replace us, the answer is no. Now that is a quote from Bill Gates when asked if Microsoft was a monopoly during its antitrust trials back in the beginning of this millennium. Um, Microsoft was vindicated of its judgments in 2001 after they appealed the ruling the drastic drop in price of their stock shortly after the verdict, which the stock remained flat for, for approximately 16 years, was uh, not really a result of the antitrust judgment, but that of um, a result of it being overvalued, the entity itself. So interesting as to what the impact actually happens to be um, on these kind of rulings. The, the email response continues our opinion. So we're not confident that Congress knows what to do with these situations. Do we see litigation being pursued? Possibly, maybe probable. Legally, will the definitions associated with violating these laws be found to be the case, then applied? And will it impact these entities significantly? The answer, very uncertain, but possible. 
I think the question then is, are, are these companies preventing others to compete? No, they're not. But they are, they are hurting viable, small, locally owned businesses. Absolutely. So further, is the concentration of these entities in the marketplace a concern? I personally think so. Gentlemen, anything to add to that? I think that like it was when Standard Oil was broken up, like AT&T was broken up, I think that there are ramifications that need to be considered for the breakup of these tech companies or not doing it. I think there's consequences both ways. I think that also it's not just antitrust regulations that these companies have to worry about. They, they too need to worry about competition. They may be quasi-monopolies today. doesn't mean that they'll be quasi-monopolies tomorrow. There's always somebody younger, smaller, better tech who's going to come after them. That's why most value investors find it difficult to invest in companies like these in the first place because they're always, they're always having to change, always having to pivot to compete. The only thing I would add to that is I think with a lot of regulations that were put in place some time ago, especially with the antitrust rules, I think you just, you know, where tech is today in the industry may need to be relooked at and how is it really associated? Because what you're really speaking about is obviously client data. That is the new black oil. I think Time Magazine had that as one of their covers a few years back where it's about the black oil and an oligopoly within the tech companies referencing Apple, Amazon, and a few others. And it's, you know, do you have to look at it? Do you not? I don't know. But it's definitely something that should be, is getting put back placed on the table. But I would agree with Nathaniel. Is it really competition? I mean, are you really a monopoly if you have people potentially coming up and competing for your spot all the time? I'm not sure about that. So mini red, you know, round robin in our round robin activity here, just some exiting thoughts on, on the podcast today. I'll, uh, I'll start that off by saying that it wasn't easy to narrow down our list of five. 2020 has been a uh, fascinating year to say the least. And so um, hopefully you enjoyed, enjoyed these five and we're of course happy to talk about many more that are going to show up as mind vendors to come down the road. Um, my thoughts for the end of this podcast. I mean, I think all five of, all five of these topics, um, I don't know if they have a feeling of a, a, you know, a change of the guard in a way where it's like, we're starting to question, you know, as tech evolved, has things evolved to a point where we need to start rethinking and, you know, policies, procedures, laws, how things work. Um, I don't know if that's just maybe COVID related where a lot of people have taken a step back and did a lot, you know, I've done a lot of self-reflecting or not, but you know, with, you know, where is quantitative easy going? Where's monetary policy? What are you looking at with these tech firms? You know, are we set up appropriately to really be handling some of these questions that are being posed? I, I can't say, obviously being the age I am, I can't say that this has never happened before in history. It's just what I'm living through in the moment, but it just seems different. But whenever you say it seems different, it's never a good thing. So that's what I always go back on. You know, maybe it's just different because it's applied to different types of, of entities and different types of technology. Outside of monetary policy, that's really been something that we will see the ramifications or positivities of that probably in the next 10, 15, 20 years. But it's just kind of interesting topics. Makes me think. I would add on to Tim's point about how this feels different. I, I personally don't think it feels different. I think that it's times like these where people who are living in the moment 
they realize they feel like it's it, like it's something new and different that hasn't been experienced by our people who came before us. We have to remember what's happened in the last hundred years, a little bit over a hundred years. We had World War One, World War Two, the Korean War shortly thereafter, and then basically right after that, we rolled right into the Vietnam War. And then once we got out of Vietnam, we had a nice little period of tranquility. And then while that was happening, we had the oil embargoes of the 70s. We had uh, Nixon, who decided to go AWOL and do what he did, Watergate, forced to resign, pardoned. And then we had a, bright, a brief little interlude there before we had uh, the call for. And then we had uh, pretty much a nice little period there. And then 9-11 happened. And we've been in Iraq and Afghanistan ever since. So when you put all that together, there's been a lot going on. We just haven't felt it as much really since World War II. When I say Vietnam, because we really haven't felt anything where we've had to really deploy hardcore as we did in World War II. We really haven't had to experience that. But we have to understand that, that the rest of the world has felt a lot more. We need to be aware of that. We need to understand what else is going on around us. We need to keep a level head on our shoulders. We need to be rational about what is good for us, but also what is good for the world. I know that's kind of um, an open-ended social agenda. That's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that, that our individual choices have consequences to not only our country, but also the world. Climate change is a, as one of them. We have to be aware of what the results of our actions are. And I think that that plays a lot into what we're experiencing today. How one super spreader, COVID super spreader at an event can literally upend the lives of hundreds of people. We have to take responsibility for our actions and be rational about how we convey ourselves in this world. So with that, on that somber note, I'd like to say thank you for listening to three guys who love to talk about finance and we'll see you next time. Thank you for taking the time to start your journey of thinking differently and listening to LBW talk about stuff they love until next time. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual on any specific security, on any specific broker-dealer or custodian. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments, broker-dealer or custodian may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinion of Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management, LLC. Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management, LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management LLC and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure.
No advice may be rendered by Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management, LLC, unless a client service agreement is in place.